Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. How you doing, everyone? I'm Russ Salzberg, and I want you all to listen up and get a load of this. A very serious topic today, drug addiction. Whether it's you or a member of your family, it's a nightmare, a living hell. And today I'm going to speak with a father who lived through that living hell. So like I said, listen up, because you're really going to want to get a load of this. All right, folks, uh, like I said, this is a very serious topic and a very serious show. Back in November, my wife and I, we went to see a terrific movie, Beautiful Boy, uh, you know, starring Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet, and it's it's just brilliant. It's it's about a teenager with a drug addiction, and uh, not just what it does to him, but what it does to his entire family. When it ended, I'm telling you, my wife and I just sat in our seats, wringing our hands. We were numb. I mean, it was exhausting to watch, especially if you're a parent. Uh, what made it even more difficult watching was knowing that it was based on a true story. And the author of that true story, David Sheff, uh, he's written for many publications such as uh, the New York Times and Rolling Stone, to name a few. He chronicled his son Nick's addiction and what it did to Nick and David's entire family. You know, as we're driving home, I'm saying to my wife, I said, Jesus, I got to get this this guy Chef on my podcast. And you know, I tried and I tried, and for whatever reason, we couldn't connect. Uh, it took a few months. But uh, we're finally here, and I'm proud to say here is Mr. David Chef. David, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Listen, Russ, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, I'm glad we got to finally get it together. Y- y- yes, we do. And, you know, f- first off, let me let me start this by, by simply asking, because that's the most important thing. Uh, how is your son, Nick, doing today? Oh, Russ, it's so... <clears throat> You know, nice of you to ask, and boy, I, I will tell you that we are so lucky, because as you described, you know, we did go through hell, and he came close to dying, you know, many times, and there were just so many other sort of catastrophic events during the course of the years that he was using drugs, uh, but he's doing great now. He's been clean now for nine years, which is miraculous. You know, he turned 36, and there was a time that, you know, I didn't think he was going to make it to 21, Right. Um, and I guess I... I just to quickly say that 
so you know we're so lucky and i'm reminded of how lucky we are these days when um you know when well, we all know because it's covered so heavily that so many kids um are overdosing and dying on uh, opioids now and other drugs i mean it's a you know, 200 a day. And so I, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't realize how lucky I am. Yeah, You've really, you know, as I was reading Beautiful Boy, but not just Beautiful Boy, we'll we'll get into it. You you also wrote Clean and you've recently um, written a book, High, with, uh, with your son, Nick. So to me, listen, you live through this hell, but it, it sounds to me as if uh, you're you're a brilliant author, but it sounds to me as if you've dedicated your life to trying to. I don't know if you can stamp out drug addiction, but at least attacking it. Fair is that fair for me to say? It is. Yeah. I mean, I was like probably I, I just didn't even think about it before this happened in our family. I mean, I certainly was aware of drugs. I'm not naive. I mean, I was I used drugs when I was a kid. I had a <clears throat> my roommate in college overdosed and died actually. So. It's not like I was um, aware of this whole world, but, you know, I certainly didn't think it could ever happen to our family. And let, let, when it let did, me, let, I let, realized. I'm sorry. Let, let me just stop you for one second. There, You just said sure. something to me. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt. You had a roommate when he was your roommate. He, he died or, or was that subsequently later? No, it was subsequently. Oh. But, you know, we, I didn't know anything about addiction then. Right. But looking back, now that I do know what addiction is, um, I realize that, you know, that he was a typical, you know, what we would call a drug addict, somebody who had this, you know, substance use disorder, and it had never, nobody knew about it then, or at least few people did. And we would go out on a Friday night to, you know, do a party or something, and at one o'clock in the morning or something like that, I would go up to him and say, listen, I got to go home, you know, I got to get up in the morning, and he... um he would look at me like I was crazy and I wouldn't see him for another couple of days. And I just thought he was this great hardcore partier. Right. right <laughs> and right. I was like a, I was kind of a loser, but it turned out of course that he had a very, very serious problem with drugs. He went on after, you know, we, we, after college, uh, his drug use just continued and he had overdoses and he got in a bad car accident. Eventually, um, eventually, yeah, he, he died of an overdose. Again, there's a million and one questions I want to ask you, but let me just ask you this. The film, was, to me, was tremendously moving. I thought the, the Timothy Chalamet, who played your son, and Steve Carell, who was you, they were both terrific. I mean, it was gut-wrenching to watch, and I, I don't say that casually. It was. How did you view the film and, and how you and your son were portrayed? You know, the most sort of gratifying part of, of this whole experience with both the book and the movie has been the um, that, that it's generated a conversation about something that until pretty recently, you know, people just didn't want to talk about. We didn't, you know, we have this image of what people who become addicted look like, and it's not, you know, glamorous by any way. And so when we ourselves or somebody we love becomes addicted, you know, we hide it. You know, it's a shameful thing. It's like it's, we blame them, we shame them, we shame their families. Um, and so, you know, the cool part of about about a movie coming out about this with those, you know, those great actors and getting so much attention because it's, you know, it is a Hollywood movie and there's a lot of um, attention to Hollywood movies in a way way beyond even, you know, even a book. Um, so many people have written to me and, I've met them at events and everything, and they've come out and said, you know, I saw the movie, 
I saw my life, um, you know, people, even my friends, my best friends didn't know that we were going through this, but here somebody understands we're not alone. Um, the movie has inspired people to go out and get, um, treatment. You know, I've heard from a girl who wrote me just the other day and said that she'd had a problem with pills, pain pills. She had, she was, you know, didn't even know the word addiction necessarily applied to her, but she was taking them all the time. She was getting really, really sick and depressed and, and, you know, and her schoolwork was going down and she was getting more isolated. And of course, nobody knew, especially her parents. And she said that she saw the movie. She just was in tears. She saw herself in the movie. She went home. She was really afraid that her parents were going to get mad at her, but she told them what was going on and they didn't get mad at her. Instead, they just embraced her and they all cried together. And she wrote to say that she was going into treatment. Um, you know, parents have written that they've reconciled with their kids with, um, I mean, it's just had such a powerful impact on people that that is, you know, at a time when this problem is just plaguing so many people, so many families that, you know, that's the part that is really extraordinary to me. Um, but you know, the other side of it is that it was really hard to watch. It's hard to remember in such vivid details what we went through, how thick, Nick was, you know, the times that he got so close to dying, and of course those were portrayed in the movie and, you know, and riveting, uh, and if riveting is the right word, because maybe that sounds like it's a positive thing, but it's riveting in that it is just so realistic and so horrifying and so hard to watch, you know, the scenes that he was using drugs and that he almost died. Yeah, no, it, it was riveting, uh, no, I, but you're not uh, riveting, <laughs> riveting, gut-wrenching, whatever you want to call it, it, it certainly, they're all... Uh... Apropos, um, you, you know, I'm a parent. I fortunately have two wonderful daughters, both married. One's 33, the other one's 36. You, you know, Dave, a lot of parents are in denial when it comes to their kids. And I'm not talking just about drug addiction, but anything. And, I, and you, you being a parent, and I know you have two younger kids. Um, was it Daisy and Jasper? Yes. Okay. Um, they, if if Nick is about thirty six now, then then uh, I guess they'd have to be around twenty, something like that. Am I my guess? Yeah, Daisy's Daisy's twenty two. Okay. Jasper is twenty four, almost twenty five. Okay. Uh, but like I say, uh, you know, there are people in denial about anything. You know, my kid can't do anything wrong. To me, though, right, exactly. uh, no, you know, you know, l l listen, oh, no, m m my kid couldn't have done that. He, no, he wasn't the right. ringleader. He wasn't the bully. It was it was Russ. It was it was David. It was anybody but but my kid. But to me, you know, w watching the film and then reading uh, in the read, of course, the book is always more in depth. Like you weren't so much in denial to me, but you were so worried about Nick and preoccupied with his addiction, that almost became your addiction. Is that making? Does that make any sense? What I'm saying there? It, it it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. I became it preoccupied me for years, and it did so at the expense of my work, the um, you know other things in my life. I mean, my my work, but even you know the younger kids. I mean, I tried my best to take care of them and be present. But, you know, when you've got a child who is on a course that could kill them, it becomes your preoccupation. I mean, I think that's what it means to be a father. And this idea that, you know, not my kid, my kid's great, he's perfect. Um, that's how we feel. 
uh, and that's how I felt. And I pretended that that continued until it was impossible to pretend anymore because Nick was on such a dangerous collision course. So, you know, so yeah, the the uh, uh, the preoccupation is devastating. It can be bad for the health. Uh, I'll tell you, I got, you know, I was sick, I, I, I was overwhelmed, I was depressed, I was anxious, you know, I wasn't sleeping. Um, but it also makes perfect sense. You know, we cannot expect a parent to um, to ignore the fact that we, you know, when a child is, is on a, could die. You know, that's what we do. Our, as parents, we want to protect our children. Mm-hmm. And it's everything we are. It's in our DNA. It's in our, you know, it's a primal, primal, primal place inside our bones. And if we can't, uh, and when we can't, and when a child is on a course that could kill them, I mean, it is just terrifying. And we are, as you said, you know, addicted to that addiction. And it, you know, of course, you know. When did you reach the point, David, um, when, you know, here you know your kid's got a problem. But when did you reach the point where uh, you might have said, I don't know if it's the right term to say, but, geez, he's at the... Nick's at the point of no return. I mean, mm-hmm. th- there's not, you know, we, we can't solve this. I, you, you know, like, we, we we as parents, we have hope. Okay, we'll get through this, we'll get through that. But when did you say, oh, this is bullshit, we're not going to be able to get through this? Yeah. Yeah, well, I did pretend or hope that things would pass, you know, and we'd move forward and he'd stop using drugs and go back on with his life. You know, at the time he was going to go off to college. It's like, Oh, he's just partying. He's just using too much. But, you know, I warned him. I said, you know, all that kind of stuff, which had absolutely no impact whatsoever. And I think I continued to be in denial until his drug use escalated at the point that he disappeared. Um, mm. He was supposed to come home one night and he didn't. And so you can imagine, oh. you know, as a parent, uh, how I felt and how, freaked out I was and my wife and I were up all night and I was on the phone to the police and calling hospital emergency rooms and um, and when I finally yeah he didn't come home that night and I didn't hear from him for another day after that and he when he finally did call and I went to find him where he told me he was he was in such bad shape you know that I knew we had to do something or else he could he would die and I mean he was in he he had been I guess he had found for the first time um the drug uh, methamphetamines. Somebody gave him some, and he took it, and he just went off on that. And he used for a few days, and he was um, on the streets and couldn't, you know. I mean, the fact that he was able to even call me and find me was a miracle. Because when I saw him, he was out of his mind. He had not. He he looked like he was going to die. I mean, he was shaking and emaciated, and yeah. uh, so that was the point when I realized, you know, we better we're going to have to do something. You know, you mentioned uh, meth. Amphetamines. This, when I was doing my research, really knocked me, for lack of a better term, and knocked me on my ass. So, so I'm reading mm-hmm. about it. And when you came out, when you were doing writing the book, so I'm, I'm going back to whenever the heck it was. I, I think it was released in 2008. You know, mm-hmm. give or take a month, a year, whatever. But Beautiful Boy. While you were writing Beautiful Boy, Nick was writing Tweak growing up on methamphetamines. Mm-hmm. And during this time, when you're both writing your books, you have a brain hemorrhage, and he has a relapse. At the sa- I mean, I, 
I mean, talk about a horror story. I mean, it, 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 when I saw that, I was a huh? You know, that, the movie can't get into all that stuff. That, that was unbelievable. You know, at the time, uh, yes, in the middle of all this, I, um, yeah, I, I, you know, one day I, I was in the house and I told Karen, my, my wife, I said, um, you better call 911. And she looked at me like, what? And I had, you know, now I know from the doctors that, I had it what what you know I described as a headache beyond anything you know conceivable anything I'd ever had in the past and that's a sign for doctors to know that you know that that could mean a cerebral hemorrhage in my case it was a subarachnoid hemorrhage is what they called it um, and you know the doctors told me at the time I was lucky again you know because people die of that and I was okay but um, but it did knock me you know. To the off off every, everything and I mean I was in the hospital for a few weeks and recovering took months and many months and um, but but um, you know I, I what I said and I wrote about this in, in the book and you know I said in this part of Beautiful Boy that you know I felt like they kept telling me that it was random that stress does not cause this kind of a brain hemorrhage I said but for years I felt like my brain was going to explode and finally it did. So I never was completely convinced that it was unrelated. Um, but either way, you know, it does show you that life is hard and we have to deal with stuff that comes off and we just, you know, who knows where it came from. But, you know, but in the meantime, in the tr middle of trying to, you know, deal with Nick, um, Nick's addiction and all the worries about that and trying to take care of all the other responsibilities and trying to be a good, you know, responsible father to the other kids and mm. husband and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, suddenly I found myself in in, in the intensive care Jeez. ward in, in San Francisco University of San Francisco Hospital. Yeah, you, you know, but you mentioned about the stress, but apparently one doctor said to you because you were talking about it, you know, and uh, the doctor, this doctor said to you, well, you know, you you asked him about the stress that you were under, and he said, well, it couldn't have helped, which to me yeah, exactly. that made a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. He was saying, um, he was saying, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally true. I, I was saying, you know, they, they were all saying, you know, no, there's no, you know, evidence that suggests that stress or, or that kind of, you know, persistent stress can cause a brain hemorrhage. He said, yeah, but it didn't help. Uh, because that's what it felt like. And you know what? I'm not convinced either a hundred percent because I was under such stress. And sure. of course my brain did feel like it was going to explode for all those years. Um, so who knows? You know, who knows if there was actually a biological thing there, but it certainly was. It, it describes the intensity of the worry that we feel, or that I, you know, certainly that I experienced for all those for all those years. Now, now, now when Nick had his relapse, you know, again at the, at, at that time, was that the last relapse he's had? You know, because you, you say he's been clean nine years, so I, if I do the math, that's roughly about the time he had the relapse. So that was the last relapse he's had. It was not. Um, after that, after both of our books came out, um, uh, he was doing well. And what he describes is he was, you know, doing well. And he went to a, um, I think he went to a party, hmm. uh, sort of an adult party with his mom. And he said he was kind of stressed out and nervous about being, he doesn't, you know, he didn't like to be in a social situation like that. And he said he did what, you know, many people who are addicted do. He, you know, he was in the bathroom and he said that the automatic response by then 
was opening up the medicine cabinet, yep. and he opened up the medicine cabinet, and there was a bottle of um, Vicodin, <laughs> and he said, you know, oh, I'll take a half of one just to you know, even out a little bit so I can deal with this party. And then, of course, a half an hour later, he came back and took the other half, and not much longer later, he took the whole bottle. And then he, the cool thing about it at that point, and the sign of progress of how much progress he'd made, was that instead of, in the past, that bottle of Vicodin would have, uh, first of all, you know, he that could have killed him right there, but it, it, it would have, at, uh, in every other circumstance, it would have led to, uh, you know, him going back to methamphetamine and heroin and all. Instead, what he did was he called up um, the next day and said, you can't believe what I did. I've relapsed. And oh. he said, I've got to get back into treatment. And he went back into treatment on his own, which was a huge, huge, huge milestone. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, when you get that phone call, you're not going to believe what I did. Like, that's like somebody's kicking you in the gut. But then they're giving you a little respite with the next bit of the sentence saying, but, but but he came forward as opposed to trying to hide it. So I, I guess, you, you know, yeah. call it progress. But 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 yeah, uh, you, you go. Dangerous. It's progress, but dangerous progress. Da- dangerous. Words, yeah, pro- yeah, for sure. As so many parents go through this, um, David, <clears throat> how long did you suffer with guilt if you will, thinking that you did something wrong or my family, we did something wrong to cause Nick's problems. Was that prevalent? It was prevalent for years and years and years. And, you know, I think that part of it is being a parent. We want to explain what happened and we're willing, at least I'm, maybe, maybe all parents aren't like this, but, you know, I'm always looking for what I did wrong in general in life, never mind being a parent. But, um, but, you know, there were a lot of things I did wrong. Um, I think when I look back, the thing that I felt the most guilty about that I know was traumatic for Nick was that when he was very young, um, uh, you know, his mom and I had a really bad divorce and it was you know, my fault. I, I, you know, did not sort of come one day and say, listen, I think we're having problems with going to marriage counseling. It was the opposite. It was like I was like I've met somebody else and, you yeah. know, and our, our marriage is over. And, you know, you can imagine what that was like, and it was like an explosion in our world. And as I described, you know, the child, Nick, was the collateral damage. And so it was really traumatizing for him. Uh, now I know enough about addiction to know that that one event, you know, is not going to cause somebody to become addicted, uh, but it doesn't help. Once again, that same old idea, you know, because that kind of stress definitely can lead to the trauma and trauma is one of the things that leads to drug use. You know, Nick also had addiction in his, um, genes. I mean, his, his family, his father, um, uh, his mother's father dr- drank himself to death. He had, Nick has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and depression. And that comes from my side of the family. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of factors, but still, you know, did I, was I too lenient? Was I too, um, strict? You know, was I too, um, did I put too much pressure on him to excel in school? Did I, you know, there was an all kinds of second guessing. And I think that, you know, one of the refrains that I write about, you know, is, is this, you know, um, you know, if only, you know, if only I'd been better at this and if only I'd been better at that, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And some of it, you know, may even be true that there could have been an impact. But the main point is that, you know, parents, 
I think that's part of the definition of being a parent is that another part of the definition of being a parent is that we do feel so responsible and we are always looking for an explanation of what went wrong and, you know, our own culpability. And, and, you know, sometimes there definitely is a connection and, you know, sometimes there isn't. I mean, there doesn't have to be. Yeah, for sure. One thing that really grabbed me, um, a doctor had pointed out to you, uh, if you will, the um, the serenity prayer. You know, I, I could decide once and for all to accept the things I cannot change, have the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And as you point out, the key was the second of those, that I have the courage to change the things that I could. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, I thought that was pretty. And that was a hard lesson. Yeah, it's a hard lesson because um, we want to. You know, again, it, I keep going back to this idea of what it means to be a parent, and every parent knows what I'm talking about. You know, we want to save our kids. That's our job. Um, but there's only so much we can do, <clears throat> and I learned the hard way. And the older a child gets, the harder it is. Um, you know, when they're little, we can make a lot more choices for our kids, and we can protect them. As they get older and, you know, and we launch them off into the world, um, our, you know, what we can do is limited. And so, you know, we can go nuts. We can just beat ourselves up all the time uh, trying to do things that are going to, that we can't control, or we can focus on the things that we can control. And, you know, when a child becomes addicted, it gets really confusing because you cannot ultimately make the decision for them if they're going to use drugs or not if they're going to stay sober or not, if they're going to go, you know, go to their therapist or not, if they're going to stay, you know, continue to do the things that have allowed them to do better when they are doing better. Um, but there are other things that we can do, and those are the kinds of things, you know, to be there to support them, to try to make sure that we are there for them and they know that we're there for them and that we will help them get the help that they need to try to encourage them to get treatment by professionals. I mean, there is a lot we can do. So uh, that you know, even that idea of the serenity prayer, it is really helpful, but it's not a magical answer either because the question about what we can do and what we can't do um, is tricky. You know, there's some things that, you know, I, I guess what I tell parents, a lot of times parents tell me, you know, is it time for me to give up? And, um, you know, in, in some ways the serenity prayer suggests that, you know, we just do have to let go at a certain point because there's not, you know, we don't, we don't have the power to make choices for other people. But that doesn't mean that we do stop trying. You know, I tell people, no, don't give up. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up until you, you know, there's no other choice. I mean, as long as somebody's alive, there's hope for them. Um, you know, there are some guidelines or, or, or restrictions within that. You know, we have to take care of ourselves. We can't allow ourselves to <clears throat> completely fall apart. It can't completely take over our life to the point that we uh, can't do what, I wasn't able to do for a while, which is, you know, to fulfill my other responsibilities. I mean, you got to be able to function. Um, but, um, you know, this is an emotional tightrope. It's a roller coaster. You know, we feel hopeful. We feel devastated. We feel hopeful again. We feel devastated. We feel that we're not going to survive it. Um, and then we feel more optimistic sometimes. And, you know, we look for things to hold on to. And for some people, it can be religion. For some people, it can be, you know, an, uh, like um, Al-Anon, you know, uh, 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 meetings. Uh, for some people, it's therapy. Uh, for some people, you know, maybe it's just going out on, you know, three-hour runs, whatever it is. I mean, whatever it is, 
We mm. need to figure out whatever we need for us as an individual in order to survive. You know, this terrible, 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 stressful, terrifying time. You, you, you say something in the book. Um, I, I couldn't change Nick. I, I, I could not change Nick, only me. Instead of focusing on Nick's recovery, since then I focused on mine. I, I thought that was... That, I thought that made a lot of sense because you're talking about you can't change somebody. You, you can encourage and try and help and, and protect. But I, as you say, I guess, as the older they get, that's that's the trick. Yeah, it's true. And we just um, have to do what we can to help them. But at the same time, yes, I mean, we do have to. That goes back to the serenity prayer. What you're saying is that... Um, uh, what I did have control over, <clears throat> I didn't necessarily have control over how I felt every day. I didn't because it was you know, bigger than control. I mean, terror is terror, you know, and you can't control that. You don't want to. You want to feel terrified if, if you're in a terrifying situation. You don't want to be sort of inure yourself to the point where you don't feel. And you also, if you're in denial, you don't make choices. But <clears throat> and. But it also, you know, was a chance for me to go back and to be in intensive therapy to try to figure out um, how I was complicit and how I wasn't, and even when I wasn't, why I would blame myself, you know, what, and and to stay more even as I went forward to be able to make better decisions. So, yeah, ultimately the focus had to become, um, you know, taking care of myself and, um doing that sort of self-exploration that really did help me survive that whole time. And ultimately it did help me help Nick better, you know, in a more useful way. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 you, you t- no, go ahead. You, you, you touch on a couple of things, um, uh, uh, Dave. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, putting your child into therapy. When I say child, I don't mean it doesn't have to be a young kid. It could, could be Nick. Right. Uh, putting a child into therapy and uh, you discuss, you know, it's better to be, some people don't know, does does he or she need it yet, this and that, and and you made a point of better to do it too soon than do it too late. I thought that was very important. It is. You know, we, part of denial, and and part of it isn't just sort of a psychological denial, it's not like there's something wrong with us for not knowing this but we just don't know we're not educated and so we are we live in a culture where there are a lot of um, excuses almost expectations that our kids are going to use drugs that they're going to have a hard time which of course they are so not necessarily use drugs but they're going to have a hard time they're going to struggle Um, but there's probably a problem and you want to find out so you don't ignore the fact if a child seems depressed maybe if you take them to a therapist, they're going to determine, no, this is okay. You know, it's it's a tough time. Kids get sad, and that's appropriate. But they also may say, you know, yeah, there's something going on. Let's figure it out. So same with, you know, drug use. You know, is my kid using drugs? I don't know. He's telling me that he's not, but he's acting differently. Um, the more you ignore, deny, postpone, intervening, the, you know, the more, the, the worse the problem is going to get. That's bottom line. Uh, and we want to intervene as quickly as we can. What? So, uh, so yeah, we have to be careful of that for sure. All right, and, and then you also touch on, okay, you're putting the child, you make the decision to put your child into therapy. What is, and I think a lot of parents listen to, 
to this who maybe unfortunately their 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 children are having a problem and they're dealing what you've had to deal with what type of therapy such as what program boot camps um your thoughts on that um people tell me to send Nick to boot camps but boot camps are all based on this militaristic you know, view that you can punish someone and, and, and sort of force them to be somebody who they aren't. Um, but you can't, you know, if a person has mental problems, you've got to deal with their mental problems. You can't just send them out running in the desert, you know. Um, they need help. They need treatment. They need a therapist. Uh, but people don't know that, so people do send their kids to these really, you know, harsh um, uh, places where they are treated like, <clears throat> you know, not just like they're in the military. It's more that they are I mean, it's, they're brutal, uh, and kids have died in these programs. Um, so that doesn't work. Uh, you know, really what works is, is you, we have to rely on the fact that we know that addiction is a disease. It's a brain disease, and so we need to rely on people who've been trained in addiction medicine. We have to rely on psychiatrists and psychologists who know what they're doing because this is a treatable problem. Uh, there are medications that work. There are various kinds of therapy that work, uh, but it doesn't work to punish people mm. it doesn't work to make them feel worse than they already feel i mean people who are addicted don't want to be addicted and they feel terrible physically and they also feel incredibly ashamed and embarrassed and they're treated poorly and they're high because of what they're experiencing and when somebody is sick that's the last thing they need you know we want to embrace them and we want to treat them with compassion and we want to get them to the best help that's available yeah that th- that part when I was reading that really touched me because fortunately, not me, not my family, but I, I have had friends uh, and I'll, I'll tell you one particular story. I don't know how, how much of a sports fan you are. Uh, you know, I started my career up in Toronto. I'm, I'm a Brooklyn boy, but I, I started my career up in Toronto and I got very friendly with uh, former heavyweight George Chavallo. Are you familiar with George? I'm afraid to say. Okay, I'm not. okay. It okay. would be if my son Jasper, who is obsessed and knows everything and everyone in that sport. Oh, okay, well, well, George Chavalo, Let's. He, he fought everybody. He, he went the distance twice with Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier. I mean, he 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 fought them all. And um, George had a son. I remember the son's name was Jesse. I remember um, got addicted to drugs and put a rifle in his mouth and killed himself. And I remember being on the phone with George when I heard the news. Uh, I, I was working, you know, at, at City TV in Toronto. When I heard the news, I remember calling up George, and you know, he, he was sitting there crying. He says, Russ, my kid just blew his brains out. You, you know, when you hear that from a friend, that's terrible. So, oh, so that, that's son Jesse. Now, because of Jesse, uh, and George had, let's see, one, two, three, four sons and a daughter. Because of Jesse, Jesse introduced had, uh, drugs to two of his other sons. And uh, George was a good guy, it was, and, and he was a good dad. He was trying. You know, a, a fighter comes oh. from in the mean streets. So both sons uh, were, you know, he got them into programs. But both sons kept getting into trouble, and then both sons uh, would go and rob drugstores to support mm-hmm. the habit. And George 
reported both of them, took them to the police because they was afraid not just for his sons. He was afraid his sons were going to kill somebody. Yeah. Subsequently, both sons ended up dying from drug overdoses, at which point after that, his ex-wife, who he remained close with, took one of the son's pills and killed herself. So that's four dead. Oh I mean, is that a horror story? And and, and ever since... It's a nightmare. It, it, I'm it, so sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and I'm telling you, that's why I, I'm so interested in this, because I've never forgotten that. I have never... It, it just, it, it was crushing it. And I, I you know, somebody's going to say, they hear that story and say, well, this guy's got, you know, the, the parents got to be screwed. He was a good guy and a loving father. Yeah. Sometimes just bad shit happens to good people and you can't do it, anything about it. You're, uh, that's a perfect way to say it. Bad shit happens to good people. And the other thing is, you know, people don't understand. I mean, that's an extreme case, but there are a lot of extreme cases where, you know, a person on um, methamphetamine is not a, the person that they really are. A person on methamphetamine is, is crazy. I mean, it's it's not an exaggeration. Their brains are malfunctioning. They're misfiring. Completely sort of anxious, manic state. They need drugs um, physically because if they don't have them at a certain point, they're going to go into a withdrawal, and the withdrawal can be, you know, feel like they're, dying and they can die of that and so the idea that people do unconscionable things that they would never do mm. if they weren't on drugs is i mean it, it makes sense but that doesn't mean it's easier and this idea of calling the police on your kid i mean you know and it's almost unthinkable for most parents but the idea there is that you know if, if a child is going to be safer in jail than they are in the streets as horrifying as that is you know, it's not uncommon for parents to call the police on their kids. And, um, you know, the, the, the better solution when you can is to get them in treatment. But some, sometimes you can't. And the idea of all those deaths related to drug use that you were just describing, yeah. it's not uncommon, and it is just the saddest thing in the world. And part of it is that also what happens is that we underestimate the problem because a lot of times in situations like that, they never tell the truth. You know, the families keep it hidden because they're embarrassed and they're ashamed. And they'll say that somebody yep. you know, had a car accident without telling you that they were drunk. Or they'll tell you that, you know, somebody, overdo somebody overdosed, but they'll tell you that they had an accident. Or, you know, somebody had a uh, – it's, it's like there's this stigma around drug use that, uh, that makes us want to hide it. But the problem is when we hide it, we don't understand. We can't accept or we, we just aren't cognizant of the – uh, of the ubiquity of the prevalence, and therefore we don't realize that it's the kind of problem that it is. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm saying, I mean, what a what a tragedy. I yeah. I'll listen. That 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 will last for me, you know, f forever and ever. You know, my wife and I say this all the time, and this is not just regarding. We're not talking about parents who, whose kids suffer from drugs but but we we say this because we we see like like when, when i when we started our discussion earlier uh you know with some parents are just in a de denial their kids can never do anything wrong and uh, i always say you, you know just because you're a loving parent mm -hmm. doesn't make you a good parent doesn't make yeah. you a smart parent sure you love your kids but sometimes because you love your kids there's always an excuse 
and that's that's a that's a fine line to be able to walk. You you say something. I I wrote it down. I, I thought it was tremendous in the book. Recovery is about dealing with that hole in the soul. What made uh-huh. the hole? No one knows. How innocent yeah. are we of our mistakes? Jeez, it's powerful yeah. stuff, David. Yeah. Well, it's true. It's true. We. You know, you asked me before about blaming myself and feeling guilty. Um, you know, what made the whole? Well, usually I think there's no easy answer and there's no one answer. Um, in Nick's case, I know that a big piece of it was, you know, the, the trauma that he experienced that, you know, that when he was young was right. a factor. But I think the biggest piece of it, and he'll tell you the same thing, the biggest piece of it was the fact that he had these mental illnesses that were never diagnosed. Right. So, you know, you've got a child who's a teenager and is suffering from depression and they're feeling so dark that, but by then they've learned that the way to, they don't know they have depression. They just feel terrible. And so they get, you know, they start using drugs as an attempt to relieve that depression. Um, and then suddenly you know, they're addicted. And in fact, drugs make depression worse. Uh, Nick also had bipolar disorder. I mean, so, Part of the hole inside him, I think, was that he had these mental illnesses that had never been discovered. Right. But, you know, there's more, and there's so many factors, and, and it's not possible ever to isolate it. And, you know, that's the tough, challenging part. But the more positive part is that just as there is a you know, sort of a puzzle of an, an un, kind of an unknowable um, you know, you can never define exactly what the pieces of the puzzle are that make someone addicted or make someone seriously mental ill or even make someone do some of the things that, you know, that you're describing yeah. those kids were doing. Um, there also is a puzzle that is different for everyone that does lead to healing and treatment and, and recovery. Uh, and for many people, it's very different. You know, in Nick's case, it was finally a psychiatrist determining that he did have bipolar disorder and depression and getting him on medications to treat those. That may have been the biggest piece. Also, you know, regular talk therapy. In addition, he found a life for himself once he was sober that he never has had before. I mean, he's got this great life and he's got friends and he's oh, terrific. It's really healthy. He exercises, he goes surfing. He lives actually, you know, near Jasper. They hang out. Daisy has been living near him until recently and they would go surfing all the time. Wonderful. Um, they got married about five or six, actually seven years ago. And so all these pieces of the puzzle oh, wonderful. allowed him to do well uh, is um, sort of miraculous. And it's important for people to know that because as bad as it gets, um, it's, possible to you know repair the damage and repair families and and uh and so that's something people should hang on to wonderful and and you know i'm going to fast forward now because you guys you and david you know you're david you and nick just uh have a book out called high and i have to tell you i I promise folks i got nothing no interest in this but i i highly recommend it because David, it's so simply written, and it's written for people, for kids and parents to see. But there's something in the book where, you know, in the past, you know, we adults and, you know, you said to the kids, just say no and oh. But you say with the book, just say no, K-N-O-W, know yourself, figure out what you want in life and weigh the risks 
of using, you, you know, you know the truth and then decide. I thought that was brilliant. I, I really did. I'm not blowing smoke at you, but I, I just thought it was so simple. It, it, it was just it, it, like you looked at it. Yeah. Take a good look. Know what you know, you know, and know what you don't know. Yeah, that's true. And that's, you know, one of the things that have happened since, you know, we went through this is the problem has gotten worse. More people are dying. Uh, and so we know that our efforts to, um, you know, to stop kids from using just have failed. And so part of our, our sort of journey over the last years has been to try to figure out if there's any way we can do it better. And what we did determine is that, yeah, there is. And it's, it's shifting the way that we talk to kids about drugs. And it's a focus on, yeah, giving them facts instead of, you know, what we used to get were these exaggerations and lies, basically, um, you know, scare tactics. Mm. Replace that with, with the facts, the truth. Uh, but the other part of it also is doing what you, know, we, you, know, you and I were just talking about, which is helping kids look at themselves, understand that, you know, a lot of these conversations don't really, shouldn't or don't have to focus on drugs, but instead on what underlies a lot of use. And so hopefully, you know, part of that book or a lot of that book is trying to get people to, um, kids, uh, to look at how they're doing in some sort of objective way. And if they're really feeling stressed out to get help, or if they're really feeling, you know, if there are problems in their home to get help, to ask for help. Um, if they started to use drugs to ask for help because they don't know, you know, they don't yeah. have anything to compare it to. They're just trying to get by, you know, you know, te being a teenager is really hard as many of us remember. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I think it's harder now, but anyway, so, so yeah, that's what the book is all about. And, it's, it's terrific. Um, I, I, that's I, where the KNOW comes from. So thanks for, you know, you know, for, for, for recognizing that. No, no, I, I, it, it's outstanding. It's not good. It, it's outstanding. And, and it's so simple. Uh, you know, it's you and Nick in conversation. It's wonderful. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this uh, before we, you know, wrap things up because uh, it has affected your life and it all starts someplace in the most simplest form. So your thoughts on legalization of marijuana? Uh, well, this is what I think. I think that the marijuana is going to be legalized. It is, I don't know how many states so far, but we have to recognize the fact that, in a sense, legalization is not the issue. The issue is, it goes back to, you know, just say no, K-N-O-W. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to deal with the fact that, legal, that marijuana is legal. And it almost doesn't matter because when it was illegal, you know, that did not stop kids from using. Right. So how do we deal with it? Well, you know, too many kids still smoke cigarettes, but the number is way, way down. And why? It's because we took seriously... Uh, cigarette smoking as a as a threat, and we did a lot of really thoughtful things to teach kids about cigarettes and a lot of other sort of interventions. You know, there's some amazing, uh, you know, um, there's ad campaigns done by the Truth, uh, I forget what they're called, the Truth Foundation or whatever it's called. You know, and we've lowered drug use, and so that's what we have to do with marijuana. We have to educate kids, so they're making the choice uh, not to not not to use, and it doesn't matter. Again, if if Marijuana is legal in their state or not. You know, Nick said that when he was a teenager, marijuana was illegal, alcohol was not illegal, and it was way, way, way easier to get pot than alcohol. Yeah. So that's not, in a way, that to me feels like almost a red herring. That's not what we need to be talking about. 
I mean, there are other issues that are related. Sure. You know, in some ways, I also don't want kids to get kicked out of school or arrested because they're smoking pot because that doesn't help them. That makes it worse. Um, and we, you know, and the jails are filled with you know people who are in there only because they've been smoking pot, and instead of throwing them in jail, they should be helped to uh, figure out what else is going on in their life that's contributing to their marijuana use. So anyway, you know, it's complicated as well. Um, you know, I, I feel like the big, big lesson from, from all of our history with drugs and uh, is going forward with a new attitude about trying to help our kids grow up as healthily as we can. Well, well, David, uh, Chef, I, I have to tell you, I, I was motivated to call you to get in touch with you after I saw the film, uh, Beautiful Boy. And I, I highly recommend it, recommend it to any and everybody because I, I think it's, it's a lesson of how uh, insidious dr- drug addiction can be. Uh, the book itself is tremendous, beautiful boy. David has also written clean about overcoming addiction, and I, I mentioned his latest book with his son uh, Nick. Hi, I highly recommend all of them. David, thank you so much for spending the time. Uh, I, I wish you and, and your family and, and Nick and everybody, you know, good health and uh, the rocky road should be uh, a lot smoother for you uh, for many, many years to come. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to talk again because it's very enlightening. And I, I think it's important for people to understand and Hearing it from somebody who went through the hell, I think it really touches home. So I, I can't thank you enough. Well, Russ, thank you so much. And thanks for the really thoughtful conversation. I mean, obviously, it's something I care about and talk a lot about. But, you know, the kinds of questions that you asked really made it, um, I think, really special and, and you know, well, can, you know, interesting for me and hopefully for the people who listen to your well, podcast. Too. Well, thank, so you. thank you. Thank you. And thank you. And, and keep, keep up the good work. Folks, right now, that is a wrap. I want to thank all of you for getting a load of this. And now i like to get a load of you. Let me know your thoughts on my conversation with David uh, Chef. You can contact me on Twitter, at Russ Salzberg, on Facebook. You can visit my website. That's real simple. It's russsalzberg.com. My thanks to the big man across the way, Crash, a.k.a. Mike Caragliano, to uh, Tim Einico, my fine OG Podcast Network producer, the head of the OG Podcast Network, Chris Rudsky, Craig Schwab, 77 WABC Program Director, Assistant Program Director, Matt Dahl. Last but certainly not least, use guys out there, because without use guys, I'd have nobody here to talk to. So until next time, it is I, Ross Salzberg, saying to all of you, bye-bye, so long, and farewell. person or a bedtime procrastinator everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style and you'll find the best mattress for you at ashley the new temper adapt collection at ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body conforming technology making every sleep tailored to be your best the collection also features cool to the touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners pets or kids shop the all-new temper adapt collection at ashley in store or online at ashley.com ashley for the love of home you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? 
That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.